before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of This Week in Doom. I know this is a good thing because I now find it perfectly normal to be talking to a green chicken. So uh, let's do that. And welcome in Doomberg, my partner in crime. How are you, mate? Grant, how are you doing? I'm doing great and uh, great to be back uh, in front of the mic with you. I know you've been all over the world yet again, but uh, wonderful that we could carve out some time together. Yeah, where do you find yourself today, Grant? I am currently in Santa Monica in California, which I have to say as pieces of real estate go, is pretty damn spectacular. Mm-hmm. So I'm told, yes. Uh, um, I, I remember spending a, a pleasant week in coastal California wondering um, how it is that such a paradise could be so polarizing to the rest of the country. But uh, indeed, if you find the right well, spot, I have the a funny thing That might come up at some point in this conversation. It, indeed um, it might. Indeed it we, might. Have an awful lot, we have an awful lot to talk about, you and I. Um, a lot of it based around you and your uh, ever- increasing virality, which, once again, you've managed to uh, touch a nerve with a couple of recent pieces you've written. Indeed. It's been, um, yeah, it's been quite fun. To be totally honest, and you and I have discussed this offline, the, by and large, um, the vast majority of discourse is polite and um, people are genuine in their desires to exchange arguments and have a, a erstwhile attempt to change each other's minds. But, of course, there's also people that I would characterize as... Uh, expressing snark without intellectual depth, which is a fancy way of saying trolling. And we have no shortage of trolls as well, both to our pieces and, of course, to some threads that have recently gone viral um, on one of your favorite topics, which is uh, Vladimir Putin and the uh, conflict in Ukraine and our response to it. And and we both have some pretty strong opinions in that regard. And what's really amazing to me is how many people that I otherwise am really good friends with and agree with uh, most of the time, we seem to have a very different view of what's going on there, which I'm sure we'll discuss. Yeah, for sure. But it, it's that kind of world, right? I mean, the world has been polarized for a decade now, and it's it's gets getting more so. And it seems like every so often a new subject comes along around which people can be polarized. You know, it's truly remarkable. But you know, there's a couple of your recent pieces that I wanted to talk to you about. The first being the the Carl Sagan inspired Wide Awake, which I think you published what, a couple of weeks ago, maybe was it that long ago? Yeah, three weeks ago, uh, as of the time of the three weeks ago, oh, almost yeah, two and a half, three weeks ago, and it was a. It was a great piece, as you say, and um, we published that one free for all, for the public, yeah. which is the first time we've done that since the paywall. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, look, talk about what it was about and then the decision why you decided that that would be the piece that you published for free. So the Wide Awake is a piece about the scientific method at its core and how many in today's discourse have perverted what the scientific method actually means and tried to use the phrase, follow the science, or, you know, we should listen to the experts, and having precisely no meaning as to what it means. And uh, you and I have talked about this before, and I forget which forum, but for sure we've recorded it, but the scientific method is not intelligence, it's not technology. The scientific method is a method, it's a process. It is a means by which 
intelligent people try to ascertain and explain the environment that surrounds them. And at the core of the scientific method is a process of nullification. And so the way science works is Grant is observing the universe and Grant develops a hypothesis. A hypothesis is a proposed explanation that fits the data that we're seeing in the real world. And the, the way the scientific method works is a hypothesis is submitted to the scientific community for vigorous challenge. And in an attempt to nullify a hypothesis, all a fellow scientist needs is one reproducible data point that invalidates it. And the moment that's accepted, then the hypothesis is null and void and cannot graduate to the next level of robustness, which is a theory. And theories are hypotheses for whom the collective scientific community has not yet been able to nullify after several years, perhaps decades of attempts, and becomes generally accepted as probably true for now. Until, until such point as a single data point invalidates the theory. Some theories last for such a long time that they graduate to sort of laws. And laws are generally accepted as extremely difficult to nullify. And it is okay to use laws as an axiomatic input into the development of the next hypothesis. In other words, nullifying a law is incredibly challenging. But nullifying a theory is easy. And then nullifying hypotheses is the core of what scientists do. Right. And Carl Sagan was a brilliant scientist and a gifted orator and to many in the country was a dangerous, dangerously naive, soft on communism leftist. And he happens to be one of the people that I admire most in the world. And as we talk about in the piece, he has this really wonderful documentary called um, Cosmos, which every child should watch and every adult should watch. Certainly showed it to my children when they were in their formative years. And um, he talks about the dangers of nuclear escalation in that piece, which is, of course, what made him run afoul of the conservative right at that time. But also, most interestingly to us in this piece, is that he was not infallible and he was wrong, and he was open to debate people uh, on his hypotheses. So, for example, we talk in the piece about how he hypothesized that the oil fires that resulted from the Kuwait-Iraq war would cause severe you know, damage to crops in Southeast Asia, and, and he was vigorously opposed in this hypothesis by a professor in Maryland, uh, Dr. Singer. And they had famously had a debate on ABC News, Newsline, and it turned out that Dr. Singer was right and Carl Sagan was wrong. Now imagine in today's society that on a polarizing issue such as this, two of the leading minds of the day would go on TV and have a civilized debate about it, and um, the media would present it, and we would be allowed as informed citizens to come to our own conclusions based on what we saw. Um, that's scaringly becoming less and less possible today, as you know. And in the piece, we talk about Carl Sagan's last interview, which was with Charlie Rose on CBS. And he talks about the scientific method. And I quote, we quote him in the piece. You know, and, and in this interview, you have to look at the picture. He's visibly gaunt. Like he's clear. It's clear that he is suffering from terminal yeah, yeah, disease yeah. and he won't be long for the earth. And he found that this was the most important message he wanted to relay to people before he died, which is um, that the scientific method... And that science is more than a body of knowledge. And I'm quoting from him here. It is a way of thinking, a way of skeptically interrogating the universe with a fine understanding of human fallibility. If we are not able to ask skeptical questions, to interrogate those who tell us that something is true, to be skeptical of those in authority, then we're up for grabs for the next charlatan, political or religious, who comes ambling along. And we thought this was a very powerful message. And we have forgotten this core element of a free society 
and the way in which society is going today with this incremental censorship and um, cancellation culture by people who have no scientific training whatsoever. Yeah. And the rest of us just putting up with it, uh, we should know better. And so that was the piece. And we decided to publish it for free. It's one that we're very passionate about. And so, you know, um, it's okay to occasionally put a piece out to the public. You do the same with podcasts. And we thought this one was particularly important to us and relevant to the modern discourse that we felt it was, it was good to, to put it out there. Yeah, it's interesting, right? This lack of the ability to debate stuff is something that yeah, I've agonized over and anguished over for a long time now. It's it's becoming more problematic by the day, you know, and, and we'll we'll get onto some of that, I suspect, a little bit later when we start talking about some of the recent moves by the Biden administration. And that's not to single the Biden administration out specifically, although they seem remarkably bent on some of these things. I mean, this is this is a political issue the world over on the left and right. So it's it's definitely not specific to, to him and his administration. But this idea that you can't debate and that um, there is an acceptable position to take on many, many topics that would ordinarily be quite contentious and are quite contentious, there's been a remarkable move to to cancel one side of so many arguments. You know, climate change is, is an obvious one. But I guess through the pandemic, we've we've seen this uh, magnified and taken to the next level. You know, if you don't believe in, in an emergency vaccine, you are a denier, a skeptic, you know, all these other other words that have been taken and used to label people pejoratively. You know, I, I think skeptic is one of the labels that, of which I'm most proud. You know, I'm proud to be skeptical. But, you know, what is it, do you think, Dumi, that has labeled skepticism as seemingly such a danger to, to all kinds of people? It's a, at its core, it's a power play and a naive one by those who support it, in our view. Uh, we're writing a follow-up piece to Wide Awake as we speak, and we were chatting again before we hit record that probably going to put it out in a few days. And the, the tentative title to it is um, Think Only Good Thoughts. And um, in the piece Wide Awake, the Sagan piece, we closed it by predicting that, you know, we, we at Doomberg have not actually written skeptically about climate change per se. We sort of take it as an axiom that the world has decided it would like to minimize carbon emissions. And we have limited our involvement in this topic to critiquing the path function of how to get from today to where we believe the world has decided it would like to go. So, for example, we write skeptically about shutting down nuclear power plants, and we are very skeptical about our ability to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels at the rate at which our politicians are trying. And we have, again, to quote the piece, the closing paragraph of that piece is, despite our best efforts to express authentically held views in a civil manner, and to back those views with data, we suspect it won't be long before, basically, we get labeled as misinformation and suitable for cancellation from the platform Substack, especially given how influential Substack hopes to become. Didn't take but a week for those predictions to begin to be realized. I mean, quite literally a week later, almost to the day, the president's national climate advisor, a woman by the name of Gina McCarthy, was widely quoted in the Wall Street Journal saying that, you know, the global warming policy responses need to be stifled and big tech should be doing more because this is such an urgent issue and speed of response is such an urgent issue. We don't have time to discuss what the proper path right. should be. Right. Um, and that you, we should just listen to our learned overlords who seem to have an unbroken track record of no scientific training whatsoever. And by the way, like as we're talking, Germany, 
which has systematically shut its nuclear power plants, mm -hmm. facing Putin's aggression, which was only enabled by their energy weakness, has turned back to coal. Coal, yeah, I know. <laughs> to coal. Right. Like, and somehow we're supposed to delegate complete blank check authority to the same idiots that got ourselves in this position. And the mere questioning of their wisdom in this regard is something that uh, subjects one to cancellation. Germany has the highest electricity prices in the developed world. Their experiment has completely and totally failed. California is a very close second behind them. What we're doing isn't working. And instead of reconsidering an erroneous path, the people that are currently in power are setting dangerous precedents under the naive assumption that somehow they can be victorious over the people that the algorithm is convincing them they should be angry at today. And yet these precedents won't boomerang back against them in due course because it won't always be that your team is in power. And I would be just as vocal if Trump were pulling the same moves. It just happens that we were writing Doomberg uh, during a, a democratic administration. These are fundamental beliefs. It's sort of the, the difference between politics and ideology. This right. is a core ideology of ours, and we would defend it against all, all threats. But, but isn't it interesting how um, anything you say now is immediately by others wrapped up in politics, right? You say this, and the first thing people do is... Team sport. Explain. Team yeah, no, no, for sure. But, but still, right? I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, common sense has become the only centrist policy, and both sides have their own way of deviating from that, you know? And it seems like common sense is almost the third party now. You've finally got a three-party system in America, but common sense is, is once again not going to get invited to the debate, you know? It's just going to be the Republicans, the Democrats. It's a dangerous thing, and I see it on, on both sides. The very first thing people do when they consume information is they look at the source. Yes. And they categorize that source via on my team or not on my team. And consume the data accordingly. And that's very dangerous for both sides. Again, you saw it during the Trump administration, and we're seeing it now during the Biden administration. We have a, a series of views that we think are grounded in physics. And by the way, how many times on Twitter have we actively proposed that we would be willing to debate somebody who thinks we're wrong on something uh, anytime, anyway? We've not yet been... Sure. Nobody has yet agreed to debate us. Well, um, and, and the, the, other, the other thing is... Let, let's say you debate and someone yeah. disproves your theory. Well, so what? Right? Great. Okay, great. I've learned something. Yeah, great. Exactly. I'd be, the, I'd be the first to write a piece on it. Right. I mean, I, you know, I'm always looking for new material. Hey, here's how we got this <laughs> wrong. Go. But, the, but this, <laughs> yeah. is, you know, this is the interesting thing to me, right? There's this, this idea that everybody is so fixated. Yeah, because the world has become such a public place, everyone wants to do everything in public. They want to show off their lives on Instagram and Facebook and everything else, and they want to – go on Twitter and, and post messages about, you know, deeply personal stuff to a bunch of strangers, it means that debates kind of have to happen in public and, and nobody wants to be made to look publicly foolish, right? It's yeah. just nobody wants to do that. No one wants to get up and be made a fool of in public. But, but on the one hand, we embrace that. And on the other hand, it makes us shy away from, from anything remotely important being done in public, like, you know, open critique and, and response and debate and argument. It's, it's, you it's know, quite alarming, it's, right? It's funny you should say that because um, my favorite podcast appearance, other than my appearances on The Grant Williams Show, of course, um, <laughs> I was a guest on the show of what you and I would call a Bitcoin maxi. 
um, a really polite, engaging, thoughtful, smart fella by the name of Marty Bent. And Marty and I spent probably a good 90 minutes having an open, honest, civilized debate. And I went on that show with the intent of starting with what Marty and I agreed with. And we did. And then we had good discussions along those lines. And then we got to the parts where we had different viewpoints. Right. And I expressed mine and he expressed his. And I learned a few things and he learned a few things. And I would say that I came away from that podcast appearance with a better appreciation for the distinction between Bitcoin and altcoins and a better understanding of the distinction between decentralized finance and Bitcoin. I hadn't really internalized the level of polarity within the Bitcoin community amongst those who consider themselves Bitcoin purists and those that they consider to be sort of Bitcoin grifters who are wrapping themselves in the flag of Bitcoin for their own purposes. And I think he had a better understanding of some of the critiques um, and especially on the difference between price and value and how some of the grifters might be affecting the quoted price that you see on the screen, stablecoin, et cetera. And he agreed, I think, with that, or at least some of it. Um, but regardless, the last person I want to meet and be friends with is the person who I agree with everything on. Right. Because then I'm, I've, I've lost my ability to grow. And so I, I, you know, maybe we'll put the link to that episode in the show notes. I don't have it before me, but um, I really enjoyed it and really great guy. And I, I got an amazing number of responses from the Bitcoin community about how much they enjoyed the appearance and how happy they were that the two of us were willing to have a civilized discussion, much like when you had the debate between Nick Carter and Mike Green right. uh, on your show. I think um, that Carl Sagan could, could debate Professor Singer on Nightline, and that was considered normal. And now that almost is like a huge exception today is a measure of the decay of our discourse that is concerning. Another example was something we could probably pivot to now, which is this weird fascination about whether the Russian ruble is a real quote or not. And maybe this is just a right, Twitter right. phenomenon because I, I don't see it in the media. Like Bloomberg reports about the strengthening of the ruble as though it's a fact. But there's this subset of people on Twitter who are, I, I agree with on a lot of issues, who are genuinely brilliant. Um, some of them I know and I know well, who are just looking at the same fact set with a completely different point of view. And so, you know, as it, as it is, you know, the algorithm tricks you into it. And on a Friday night, I got into a little bit of a back and forth with a, with a large account that you know that I won't name here. And um, instead of the sort of tit for tat at Twitter, although I did, did have a great meme that I posted in that exchange, which you know. And, and <laughs> but um, I slept on it on Friday and I decided that uh, you know, the proper response here was, is to write a detailed, authentic, fact-based thread, starting with our fundamental understanding of how the energy markets work, and then tying it back into why we believe this fundamental understanding explains the observations that we're seeing on our Bloomberg Turtle better than this is fake. And we put out that thread and it went viral. It's, it's over 4,000 likes. The top tweet in the thread has over a million and a half impressions, which is a, for us, that would be a great day. Uh, for a tweet, it's literally the best tweet we've ever put out there. And I, I would venture to say that um, we changed no aspect of the mind of the person that I was, I was debating on Friday night, and um, they dismissed it as pro-Putin and anti-Biden, which couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, right. it is a recipe for defeating Putin that I'm voluntarily putting out into the universe and sincerely expressing this as our core belief, uh, not as a team sport point scoring exercise. And um, 
I was disappointed by the response, but uh, such is life. You can only do your best and, um, and carry on with things. Well, well, look, there'll be people that haven't seen it. And again, we'll include that link to that thread. But talk a little bit about that thread. I obviously have the almost supernatural ability these days to look at things impassively. And I found it just very, very interesting. You, you argued your point very well. And, you know, it, what you said made an awful lot of sense. So it, it certainly, what you wrote wasn't dismissible. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It's not something you could write and just go, uh, anti-Putin or pro-Putin antibody. It, it just doesn't lend itself to that. So, so talk a little bit about the threat. Yeah, so at its core, I won't repeat the sort of energy is life thesis that we've talked about here many times. At its core, there's two fundamental axioms that need to be addressed, internalized, and debated. So the first of those is Putin is funding his war machine by selling oil. I don't think anybody debates that. The second is the world cannot live without Putin's oil. Mm -hmm. And so given that fact set and also our direct experience in commodities and just plain observable fact, you have much more power over price than you do volume. And so the price elasticity of demand of oil is huge, as we all know. It's highly inelastic, which means small shortages leads to price spikes of epic proportions and supply gluts lead to price crashes. And we're, we all know the best and most famous example is post-COVID, oil traded for minus $37 a right, barrel right. because of a relatively small supply glut uh, for the one trader who happened to be stuck in that, in that contract and had to, be, you know, had to pay somebody to get himself out of it because he couldn't store yeah. it. Um, so we've gone from minus $37 a barrel oil to uh, you know 125 130 at its most recent peak that's a $160 swing that proves that the best way to affect putin's revenue is not to stop his ability to transact which is both an impossible task and one that would devastate the global community the proper response is to crush his revenue by lowering the price and the only two handles we have available to us to lower the price of oil or supply and demand. We can either create much more supply or radically reduce our demand. And the administration is doing the opposite or trying to do the opposite uh, on both regards. So while we are demonizing the oil companies, threatening windfall profit taxes, writing them nasty letters, and telling them that we need you to spend a lot of money now and we're going to put you out of business in five years, yeah. they're at the exact same time working to distribute gas rebate cards, which spurs demand, and also looking at removing gasoline taxes. Now, it is admirable that the administration would want to diminish the economic impact on those among us who are most vulnerable to Putin's price hike. Let's just use their language. That's an admirable thing, except it will backfire. And we said in a tweet just this morning, gas rebate cards put a bid under gasoline, which causes oil to be higher than it otherwise would be, which enables Putin because Putin is financing his war machine by selling oil and the world cannot live without his oil. And so it follows that our objective should be to lower the price of oil as much as possible. And this used to just be common knowledge before the first Gulf War. We worked with all our allies, especially the oil producing nations, to open the spigots and pump so that we could proactively get ahead of any disruptions to the international oil markets that might result from the conflict uh, in Kuwait. We're doing the opposite of that today. We're attacking supply 
and spurring demand and wondering why the price of oil is skyrocketing. And so that objecting to this would somehow be controversial is amazing, but it is what it is. And so we laid all this out in a piece. We started the piece by describing, I think quite eloquently, why energy is so inelastic and why um, Putin had all the cards. We gave him those cards. And I would close this answer by saying, pointing out what is wrong with our current approach with a reasoned alternative is not unpatriotic or pro-Putin. It is the opposite. <laughs> Here is the set of instructions that if you follow them will weaken this person that we both believe needs to be weakened. But yet expressing that somehow is triggering to people who would rather believe that the quotes they see on their Bloomberg terminal are somehow made up or are part of a Russian disinformation campaign. The ruble is strong. Putin is making a lot of money. He is still trading with three to four billion of the world's population. They need his energy. He needs their stuff. There's a crossing price where the, they make up the difference in international trade. And the, the value of the ruble, even measured in U.S. dollars, is a critical input into that. And the sanctions aren't working. It's not unpatriotic to say the sanctions aren't working. It is unpatriotic to deny that they're not working and to continue to enable him. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, the difference between now and the Gulf War when they were getting ahead of it trying to open the spigots, obviously, is now the marginal producer is the United States, right? So mm -hmm. back then, if you want to open the spigots, you're opening the spigots in other people's countries and you're damaging other people's environments. And not that that was a consideration at the time, certainly not a primary consideration. No one was talking about the environment in 1991, for example. No one was really out there talking about, oh, we can't open the spigots because of what they're the damaged the environment. But it is a real problem now for the US because it's your backyard. It's up to you to open the spigots. But to your point, if the Germans can restart their coal plants, I mean, it's just, I just, I can't say it without laughing. If the Germans can restart their coal plants, I don't see the impediment to the US being able to encourage more oil supply. I struggle to understand how deep the feelings must be towards this to, in the short term, not explain to people rationally, look, here's the situation. It's not a long-term solution. We know this is not what we want to do, but you all know what's going on in the world. You know what the problems are. Here is a guy that we have to beat. This is the way to beat him. We will suffer some pain in the short term, but there is a reason for it. It's not just wantonness on our part. Yeah, and it's even worse than that. It would be one thing if you decided that your environmental chops were so important to you that you felt this pain was worth imparting upon society. True leadership would mean you would go and advocate for that and get the people behind you. Instead, right. we want the benefits of our sort of environmental grandstanding while having no damage to the population, which is literally an impossibility. And so you can't attack supply at home job owned negatively the oil and gas sector, give in to environmental organizations and their litigious nature, while at the same time expecting that prices at the pump are going to reflect that. And I would give you a proposal for you to consider. I believe that if Biden stared down the environmentalists and started speaking positively about the domestic fossil fuel industry and the need for hardworking Americans to produce the energy that the world desperately needs, and that we'll put aside our debates about what to do once we're past this emergency. You'd see a $40 clip off the price of oil today, regardless of supply demand. I think you're absolutely right. There is, a, there is a political risk premium embedded in the price of oil today. 
If we did that, and then we also negotiated a diplomatic solution to the situation in Ukraine, oil would be back to $60 before we knew it. That's my personal view. No, I I agree with that 100%. And so we're not going to do that, though. We seem to be doing that. Now we'll see. Um, Biden is calling in all the CEOs. I'm not sure if you saw Chevron's response letter to Biden on the matter, but it was pretty Which was great, I thought. I thought thought it was great. I mean, it's so bizarre that you would see the Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, on television, on CNN, saying, well, look, we have a short-term issue. We need the oil companies to invest, literally, hundreds of billions of dollars now. But in five years, it is still our intent to put them out of business. Yeah. Who's going to write that check? Oh, at the same time, we're going to pressure the Wall Street banks to defund the fossil fuel movement. So if you are so firm in your belief, and I would respect people who are this firm in their belief, that you are willing to impose upon the American electorate $15 a gallon gas to simultaneously achieve your geopolitical and environmental objectives, that's different. Selling to the American people that you can achieve your geopolitical and environmental objectives and they won't feel any consequence of that is naive at best and deceptive at worst. Well, look, more fool anybody that believes that, first of all, right? I mean, you you, you don't have to be a particularly deep thinker to realize that that's nonsense if that's what's being pushed towards you. But I do wonder, you know, when I watch this stuff go on, you know, the, the people in the administration they're not idiots. We can call them fools, we can call them morons, we can say all these things that we want, but these are people of above average intelligence, right? Now, you, you only have to hear a, a cartoon green chicken talk about this to realise how preposterous it is. And yet, these people will write these things and will say them in front of cameras and will stand behind lecterns and read them out and I just don't understand who they think they're talking to, right? Who, who is this message supposed to be going to? And what are you trying to achieve with it? Because if you're trying to achieve any kind of credibility, you're failing miserably because anyone's going to look through this and go, well, that just is ridiculous. Ah, you'd be surprised. Well, clearly, but, but I'm surprised that they've done that calculus and they think yeah. they will get more out of this by saying these ridiculous things than they would by saying something pragmatic. And yes, you're going to get some of the, you know, kind of environmental crazies going absolutely batshit on you. Of course you are. You're, but you're going to have that anyway from someone, no matter what you say. But at the end of the day, you are going to relieve stress, meaningful stress, when people can't fill their cars up with gasoline, on more people's lives in the short term, which should be the goal, surely. So it's an interesting question, and let's, let's pose it specifically. Does John Kerry believe what he is saying? I think he does, actually. I think he is sincere in his belief, and I think the elite pipeline of you know, Yale to government service without ever having really spent time in industry, although to be fair, John Kerry did serve in the military, which as far as practical experience goes, is one to be um, lauded and respected. But to the average advisor, working in the Biden administration and, frankly, even the Trump administration, precious few of them have actually toured, you know, a major petrochemical facility to understand how many thousands of engineers it takes to construct and run such facilities. What does the concept of energy return on energy invested mean? You know, I I was having a great discussion with our friend and former guest, Dr. Chris Kiefer, you know, that the energy payback period on nuclear power is six weeks, which means for every 1% of today's energy 
um, that we harness, that we invest in producing nuclear, we can displace 9% of our energy next year. Um, the answer is there. If, if nuclear power, as Josh Wolf famously, famously said on Twitter, if, if nuclear power was invented today, it would be hailed yep. as the civilization-saving invention um, of the world. And um, there's lots of disturbing reasons why nuclear power has been shunned by the environmentalist movement. I suspect that the true Russian disinformation campaign um, can be found in that arena right. uh, when, when the full history of this is written. Um, and which is why, of course, they attack people who are pointing this out as uh, basically, you know, according to certain high-profile Twitter accounts, uh, Doomberg is nothing more than a uh, a puppet of Vladimir Putin. Yes, I've, um, I, I'm, which, I'm aware of this. I, I, which I'm, is it's absurd on the highest order. Like, here is a way to defeat Putin becomes shut up, you Putin enabler. It's really, truly stunning. But, you know, it is what it is. Don't get on Twitter unless you're willing to face such. Uh, no, that's and, true. That's true. And the way we've decided to face them is with... Um, very long, detailed, calm, polite threads that politely and explicitly explain both the foundation of our thesis and the conclusions that inevitably must be drawn from them if you accept the axioms at the top of the thread. And we're just going to keep doing that until they decide to cancel us, which, you know, we're prepared for. Well, yeah, okay. So uh, what, what I'm really interested in is the degree of polarization around this. And as I said, the, the fact that Solutions are there. Solutions are clear. Let's take the two that we've talked about there, right? Let's talk about the the fossil fuel solution, right? Which is a which is a straightforward solution. Yes, we know it goes against energy policy in the short term, but it very quickly alleviates pressure. As you said, just the mere mention of it would alleviate significant pressure on the oil price. So you would think they could actually start just talking about thinking about this. That would be enough to knock ten, fifteen dollars off the oil price, probably. One would imagine. They could then drag the negotiations out. They could, you know, take their time and in the meantime, buy themselves some time and wait till this all kind of ease a little bit. And let's face it, neither this administration nor the several previously, nor uh, our friends at the central banks of the world have proven against the idea of jawboning things and trying to move markets around with what they've said. So I don't understand why in this case they are not open to saying, you know, we'll entertain the idea, we'll have to, we'll have discussions, we'll have hearings on it, whatever. Whereas the nuclear option, and, and we did, we had Chris on the on the show, and he did a fantastic job in debunking a lot of the anti-nuclear rhetoric. And, and in fairness, after that, I received a lot of emails from people saying, you know, that was really informative, and it got me thinking about nuclear in a whole different way. So it shouldn't be difficult, do me to come out with some means of communication with the public that opens the door to one of these two things. Yeah, and back to an earlier point, um, even absent that, holding a press conference and saying, the policies we've implemented are important for our geopolitical power and for what's right and, and just in the world. And for a temporary period of time, the price you're going to pay at the pump is going to elevate substantially. And uh, we are working with the oil and gas industry to make sure that we do whatever we can to um, lower the peak of that apex, however high this price spike will go. But, you know, during World War II, we had substantial sacrifices imposed upon the American people. But there was the political will to justify those circumstances, however much of it was turned out to be propaganda as for historians to debate. But FDR did not shy away from the need to call upon Americans for some sacrifice. And they did. War bonds and, 
you name it. There was substantial sacrifice, rationing. The whole pad system that we have in the U.S. right now is an outcrop of the forced rationing of gasoline in World War II. Now, obviously, Pearl Harbor is different than what's going on in Ukraine, and we don't have an official declared war between the U.S., thankfully, and Russia. These are sort of proxy battles in a warmer war than a Cold War, but not quite a full hot war, and so these are important distinctions. But either you're going to work to lower the price of oil in partnership with the fossil fuel industry, who, by the way, probably stand ready to help the president in this regard. They don't want to be subject to windfall profits taxes. And as we said in one of our pieces, left to their own devices, the oil industry will always overinvest and collapse prices for you. This is why it's so cyclical. But to attack them and to try to score political points and to make them a scapegoat, and then to turn around and expect them to invest billions of shareholder value in the face of a regulatory regime that has promised to make sure they don't make much money on those investments. And then while also simultaneously understandably working to offset the impact on consumers who are most impacted, which only serves to stoke demand, is going to fail. It's just not going to work. And I don't think it's unpatriotic to point that out in advance in the hope that we take a different course. Well, no, in a rational mind, there's no question of that. But rationality is in reasonably short supply, as is oil at the moment. But thinking about what you just said there, this idea that they can come out and talk about this stuff and move markets around. They can change the debate. They can talk about nuclear. They can, you know, there are all kinds of things they can do. But it seems as though the idea that you alienate any part of your base right now in such a tumultuous political climate seems to be the absolute no-no. So we cannot say anything that will alienate our base. And to the Biden administration, their base... Uh, a solid part of that, is the environmental lobby. So how does that ultimately play out? Because at some point you have to make a trade-off between politics and your responsibility as the steward of the nation's fortunes, surely. It's a great question. It's a great question, and obviously one we've wrestled with because, in fact, we've known of and in our prior careers, worked around and with members of Biden's staff. And we always thought that he was a um, practical politician. You know, um, DuPont, for example, is the large chemical company that is has their headquarters in Delaware. And, and you know, we used to joke in the industry that Joe Biden's Senator D, DuPont instead of Delaware, because he was, you know, always protecting their interests in, in the Senate. And um, it's an amazing thing. And so I, I would argue that, you know, one of the great moments that you've written about in, in your letter is this draggy do-whatever-it-takes moment, which, of course, has turned out to be, you know, the most successful impromptu bluff in the history of the world, yeah, potentially. That's the truth. Imagine Biden stepping up to the mic with the CEOs of the major um, oil and gas producers in the U.S., waving his finger, saying, we stand ready to do whatever it takes to supply the world with the critical energy they need so that we can isolate Vladimir Putin and destroy his war machine. Not only would that crash the price of oil, relieve the pressure at the pump, I would argue it would garner so many orders of magnitude more new supporters than he would lose on the extreme left. In other words, there's a vast middle that actually looks at Ted Cruz and says, I'm not like pro-passionate Ted Cruz. I, yeah, I would yeah. fall into that category. Like I, I could vote for a, a, a Democratic leader with good leadership attributes and have, and I could vote for a Republican leader with good leadership attributes and have. I'm interested in being led by competent people 
with a decent set of principles who put the country first. And if Biden came out and said, we all recognize this is an emergency. I've developed relationships with and I stand in front of the 15 most important CEOs in the industry who are patriotic. And we have decided collectively that we're going to work together to temporarily increase supply through the elimination of you know, nuisance lawsuits and permit issues. And you know, we're going to pass executive orders when we need to. And um, we're doing this because uh, Putin's outrageous invasion of an otherwise separate country is uh, the type of action that cannot stand in the 21st century. And um, we need a unified front. And now's not the time for political squabbles. There will be a time to decide what our long-term energy policy is, and it's not today. And then you have a parade of CEOs praising the president, committing the full resources of their highly talented companies to abate this energy supply crisis that we're going through today. You could have the CEO of CF Industries, the major fertilizer producer in the U.S., committing to putting on extra shifts and expanding their capacity and understanding that, yes, they're making record profits right now, but they're going to recycle those profits into investments because they put the country first. I think the CEOs of such companies are among the most patriotic people in the country. And they, they would listen to a skilled leader asking them to, um, you know, in the same way that the U.S. automotive industry completely retooled their plants in World War II. This could happen. It hasn't happened. That's a choice. Well, let's posit why that might be, because you're right. It makes perfect sense. that It's a, a very viable strategy. I can see how people would hold their nose and get behind it. Even, you know, some on the, the right edge of the environmental lobby might be able to hold their nose about that. So what stops them doing that? Because this can't be something they're not polling. This can't be something they're not trying to take the temperature on. Because look, at the end of the day, the gas prices are a bigger problem for Biden than they are for a lot of families, right? I mean, ultimately, his future, and certainly that of the Democratic Party in the midterms, hinges on oil prices for now. So you would think they'd be doing everything possible to get those prices down ahead of the midterms because, uh, I mean, they've got a wipeout coming, I think. So what is it that we're missing here? Because they can't have not thought about this. This is a choice to not take any of these steps. What are we missing? I don't know. Um, If I knew, yeah, I don't know, Grant. It is perhaps a product of the hyperpolarization of our discourse, and this is just the first major immediate negative consequence of it in the sense that there might be literally no emergency that causes people to pause and reconsider whether it is not the other team that is at fault. I hope that's not the case, but I'll give you a great example. If you look at the, you know, the diesel, <laughs> diesel spreads out to like October, the market is telling us there's going to be a shortage. There are already on social media, as, um, you know, maybe as de-emphasized as they might be by the algorithms, sporadic reports of truck drivers stranded on the side of the highway because they couldn't get any diesel. Now, I understand why the powers that be might want to diminish the proliferation of such reports because it might cause a panic that would only exacerbate the problem and and make it worse. It's going to take a full crash into the brick wall before we see change. And the danger with that is then you throw all the dice in the air and you don't know how they land. And some of the outcomes are bad, as we quote in the Sagan piece. You know, sometimes I have dreams, sometimes they're bad dreams. If you have a total breakdown 
in the political cohesion of the U.S. and an erosion of respect for our institutions. There are many possible outcomes, some of which are particularly bad. The final ridiculous part of this is now we have Biden on a plane to Riyadh, um, <laughs> you know, to go and shake the hand uh, of a man whose hand he swore he'd never shake, to go, you know, and prostrate himself before MBS and beg him to open the, the, the spigots. You know, it's it just none of it makes any sense. None of it makes sense from a pragmatic point of view. None of it makes sense from a public policy point of view. None of it makes sense except from a fringe political agenda point of view. You know, this is not politics. This is fringe politics. This is trying to placate one wing of your base. And it's not even placate them. It's placate them at the expense of all the others. And I just cannot understand it. So when smart people do things that I totally and completely can't understand, I assume I must be missing a critical piece of information. I don't know what that is in this case because I agree with you wholeheartedly. And worse than that, as much as I really enjoyed your most recent interview with James Aiken, who is brilliant, and he's probably right, his hypothesis that Biden would not be going to Saudi Arabia unless he felt fairly confident that he had a deal in hand and that the recent price action in the oil market made him pause. And Lord knows he's an infinitely better macro investor and reader of the markets than I could ever hope to be. And so I don't take his comments lightly. But but you and I had an off, offline discussion where we thought that an equally compelling hypothesis is MBS is inviting Biden over just so he can embarrass him and rub his face in it and to send him away with nothing, which Lord help us if that's the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for the record, as I've tried to explain to people, I would like oil prices to be lower. I would like Putin to have less money. I would like Biden to strike a deal with MBS that causes the Saudis to get behind our cause, that allows us to uh, bring the price of oil down. I don't like paying $6 a gallon gas, and I don't like the fact that um, Americans who are less able to afford to do so than I are facing the same dilemma. This is not healthy. This is not good. We would prefer healthy. We would prefer good. The name is Doomberg, but it's almost sarcastic. I mean, we're not right. cheering for the ruble to get stronger and for oil to go higher and for inflation to run rampant. Um, none of those scenarios are good. You know, it's like saying, I, I bought a really great piece of real estate, but the whole city is flooded. I, I don't want the city to flood. <laughs> this is our sincere belief. We are, are an earnest attempt to point these things out. So back to the trip to Saudi Arabia. That trip would make a lot more sense if Biden had already had the press conference we just described. Right. Agreed. Because it's a, that is consistent with an, you know, whatever it takes moment and you'd better be damn sure it's going to be enough. You know, uh, we will cut a deal with Iran. We will cut a deal with Saudi Arabia. We will bring Venezuela back into the international fold. We will approve the Keystone pipeline. We will fast track permits. We will build natural gas pipelines. We will fast track the construction of LNG export terminals. We are going to win the energy war and we're going to bankrupt Putin on price because we can't bankrupt him on volume because bankrupting him on volume is both practically impossible to implement and if we did, it would have devastating consequences to the poorest in the world. Yeah. Um, and so it's just so clear. But I still, after all of this, I'm not ready to ascribe a nefarious motivation to the behavior that we see. I still think it's literally just, I think John Kerry believes what he says. And I think John Kerry has a disproportionate sway over the Biden administration. 
And we tweeted, the energy crisis will not evade until John Kerry is no longer an employee of the U.S. government. Um, the man is out of touch. And um, as we said in the, the thread that went viral, offering the world a choice between, you know, self-destruction or annoying John Kerry, uh, we're offering them no realistic choice whatsoever. <laughs> like, I know how India is going to vote. Uh, we know how, you know, Pakistan is going to vote. We know how Vietnam, you, you name it. Like, this is, yeah. people aren't going to choose to starve because a Yale-trained attorney flies in on a private jet and tells them that they should starve. That's just not how this is going to go. No. And to bet on that is foolish. Now, is what it is, but it's just fascinating. So I, I for one, am anxiously watching the trip to Saudi Arabia, assume it goes off, and to see what the outcomes are. Because there's a part of me that thinks, uh, look, any guy who is willing to take a saw to his political opponents you know, in one of their embassies is probably willing to extract a pound of flesh in revenge to a U.S. president that he believes has embarrassed him. Yeah. Now, whether they can get away with that or not, we'll see. But um, And I, I totally respect Aiken's view, and he's probably right. I give it 85-15 on odds. Um, but it should be fun to watch. But they're an important 15, let's face it, because yeah. cause the, well, the, the, the yeah. ramifications of it being the 15, yes. not the 85, are pretty, uh, yeah. are pretty big. The expected value, as we would say. You yeah. know, um, it would be pretty outrageous. And um, it is, well, let's just put it another way. It is within the decision framework of MBS to decide whether or not to deliver a crippling blow to Joe Biden's political future. How is it that we have delegated this power to MBS? Because you agree with me that if MBS is playing a dangerous game with the administration, but decides that he's going to embarrass him and send him home, send him home with nothing, that would be a very politically damaging event for Biden. You agree? Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. We have delegated that authority to a man who took a saw and chopped up his political opponent into pieces. Yeah. Yeah. That is an indictment of the set of policies that got us here. I think, you know, that that's the message here, right? I think the message is we're looking at where we are, but the real key point is how we got here. And it is, it's not short-term policy. This, is, this has been building. This is decisions that could have been made months, if not years ago. And yet here we are. We now find ourselves back up against the wall and being forced into things like getting on a plane and going to Riyadh. Because what we didn't have the foresight to do this, we didn't have the guts to respond differently, we didn't have the political cojones to take a chance on potential you know, vote-losing strategies in the short term, but couch them in a way that would make them accretive. I mean, it just, it's just it's mind-boggling to me. Yeah, and again, it's, it's too easy to slip into the conspiratorial mindset, which we have tried our best to resist. I do think that open discourse free exchange of views, impassioned pleas to consider alternatives is the proper duty and responsibility of well-informed citizens. And we intend to keep doing that as long as, you know, unless and until we get canceled from the platform for having the audacity to express a different view on, on certain subjects. But it is, you know, it, it is fascinating. And again, many a U.S. president has gone to Saudi Arabia to kiss the ring uh, of the leadership of that country. Like this is not some unique thing. They've normally done so from a, a foundation of political support and strength and a, a geopolitical and military, um, you know, as Zihan would say, advantages that and some chips to play. And, and maybe we have those. And again, as I said earlier, anytime I see intelligent people doing things that I literally cannot explain, 
I think it's safe to assume that there must be something that you don't know yeah. that would more easily explain what's occurring as opposed to some massive gap of competence and or other nefarious political explanations. I, I refuse to live in a country where that is normalized. Well put. Well put, my fine-feathered friend. Well, listen, we will find out. We will find out what happens with this Saudi trip, assuming, as you say, if it goes ahead. We will find out if there is something we're missing, I'm sure, uh, or whether this is just a strategy based on um, on hope. But in the meantime, I guess uh, just keep on doing what you're doing because the pieces you're writing are, are excellent. You know, they're very well informed, they're very well researched, and they're very well articulated. And, you know, for, for the people that struggle to read stuff that challenges them and, and, and read opinions that counter their own, you know, that's not your problem, my little chickeny friend. <laughs> yeah, I know it is. It, it's just, it's all in good fun. And, you know, I, um, there will come a time when the, uh, the Twitter fights of yesteryear will be forgotten and um, we will agree with, uh, with the very same people on a different set of issues. And um, that's, that's just the way that it is. And uh, we're certainly not afraid to get into the arena, as you know. And by the way, this has been a great blast and um, really enjoy our one-on-one conversations as much as I enjoy the guests. And so it was really fun and I appreciate the opportunity to do another recording with you, given how busy you are. And, and uh, you know, where, where in the world is Grant? Is it like a board game I'm, we're, yeah. we're going to put together here at some point? Yeah, you know, the, the sad thing is I would probably lose. I would, I would wake up many mornings trying to figure out where the hell I am. Um, all right, well, listen, all that remains is uh, thank you, Doomberg, for popping your head out the coop to spend this last hour with me to thank you out there for listening uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as we've enjoyed having the conversation you can follow me on Twitter if you don't do so already you'll find me at TTMYGH yes and you can find uh, Doomberg at Doomberg T and our writings are of course at uh, Doomberg.substack.com and uh, Grant thanks again and if you don't already subscribe to Doomberg you're missing something very important I suspect so put that right right away Doomy I will talk to you again soon my friend take care YouTube, bye-bye. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.